So let's dive into it. Part one, I entitled today's message, World Famous, and I want to talk about being known for the right things. Uh, I want to begin with a concept, and that's the issue of reputation. How are you known? Uh, I had a meeting this last week where I had an opportunity to reconnect with a friend of mine that I worked with uh, 14 years ago. In this meeting, uh, I was notified that 14 years ago when we worked together, my reputation was in question, and I didn't know it. Uh, I was notified that back then, uh, there were some questions as to my character, questions as to my work ethic. I had no idea. People were thinking that maybe I was spending time, uh, spending too much time with one person at work, that I was not doing the work that I needed to do, that other people had to cover for me. I didn't have any idea. And to me, it's highly offensive because I have a super powerful work ethic. Um, I will try to work really, really hard. If I'm there, I'm going to give everything that I have. So to hear that other people had questioned me was really hard to hear. They even had questions whether or not um, there was issues going on of morality. I didn't know that either. Because honestly, it couldn't have been more innocent and more regular and more basic. But still, other people had these things in mind. So I want to bring up this issue of reputation. How much does it matter? In some ways, there are things that you have to allow God to fix. For example, that scenario, I didn't know it was happening, so how in the world am I going to fix it? If something's going on underneath uh, the surface, I can't address it if I don't know it's there. Uh, there are other things that you need God to fix. Let's say that you have a reputation that is completely bogus. And you know that no matter how hard you try to correct it, it just looks like you're defending yourself. It's almost like once you're, you know, somebody says you're insane, the more you argue against it, and the more people are like, yep. Totally insane. And so you can't worm out of it. There's no way. Whenever that kind of stuff happens, you have to let God fix it. And the only thing that you can do is be consistent in your character. If you are consistent in your character, eventually people will either grow bored thinking about it, or they're going to go, there's no way that's them. I know them way too well, and no, that's not them. I'm going to drop that whole idea. There's no possible way those two attach. Uh, that was kind of how the early Christian church had to do it. Uh, early on in Christianity, Christians were known uh, for being cannibals. Uh, they were known for orgies. They were known for all kinds of weird, wacky stuff. And you go, well, how in the world did that stick? Terminology. Um, early on in the Christian world, we would say things like, we eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ. It's communion. By the way, not an awesome way maybe to do your PR, uh, to try to explain to the world what you're doing. Uh, now we're going to blame Jesus on that one. He brought that up. Now people thought, well, you're eating the flesh of a person that's and you're drinking blood. That's really weird. Okay. And granted, it sounds weird that stuck and people ran with it. Um, the other thing was that before they would have communion feasts, they would get together and share a meal as a family and they would call it a love feast. Well, in every other area of society, a love feast was something different. So they were going, ah, that's what they're involved in. Now, if something like that is ever attached to your name, well, you know it's completely untrue. You just have to be consistent, and it will eventually drop off. But you really have to allow the Lord to do some of that PR work. But there's other things that we can 
do something about and our reputation does matter. Unfortunately, we say this a lot. Who cares what they think? Let's be careful with that. If you seek to be an effective Christian and an effective Christian at all times is ministering to other people and evangelizing the world, right? Isn't that what our job is? A lot of people think that they go to church and that has something to do with their Christian life. Really, when you come in here, this is a build-up time, this is a break, you're supposed to be on 24-7 when you walk out of here. So that's actually all the work time. The majority is work time, you come in here and get reloaded, all right? If you're going to be an effective Christian, your ability to communicate will depend on your reputation. What do I mean? If you are known in your neighborhood as a liar, you're not getting anywhere. Anything that you say about Christianity, they're going to assume is a lie. If you're known as a womanizer, anything you say about morality will be thrown out and your character will be in question. Should you care about your reputation? Absolutely. For the sake of evangelism, for the sake of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, it matters what people think. And if you're doing something actively, breaking your integrity, living different here than you are at home, than you are at play, than you are at work... If you're doing something actively to screw that up, you're ruining your opportunity to love on other people. You're going to go, well, they should understand. No, they don't understand. Well, then you compartmentalize. But I'm like this most of the time. Doesn't matter. And we all know that the bad stuff that we do has more legs than the good stuff that we do, right? It will automatically go down through what? Like wildfire through the vine. And everybody's going to know about it. We have to watch how we live and treat other people. Why? Because you're walking under at least four banners everywhere you go. You're walking under your identity. Who are you as a person? That banner. Your name is above your head. What do you like? Number two, you're walking under the banner of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, they're going to think that Jesus is a little bit like you. Number three. You're walking under the banner of your family. Your family name will be attached. Parents get blamed for stuff their kids do, right? Kids get blamed for what their parents do. Number four, and this is the one that we don't think of very often, you walk around under the banner of Bridgeway. What you do reflects on this church. How you handle yourself, how you treat other people, reflects on all of us. Our reputation as Bridgeway is very, very important to me. Not to control our press, but to get an idea on where our lives are at. A buddy of mine uh, just got pulled over for speeding the other day, and the cop talked to him, and he said, you've been drinking. And my buddy said, no, and another gal in the car goes, actually, we just came from Bible study. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, really, where do you go to church? And they go, Bridgeway. And he goes, oh, where Lance preaches. And they went, yep. And he's like, ah, gotcha. All right. And they go, do you go there? He goes, nope, but I know about it. Okay, here's the deal. We are known everywhere now. We've largely been under the radar for years. So we're now going in. I've been here for 14 years. The church has been around 15 and a half years. Most people had no idea we exist. And even now we're slightly under the radar, but we're starting to emerge out. When that happens... You're going to be known everywhere. What you do reflects back on the rest of us. So the fill in the blank in front of you is something I want you to question. 
deep inside because you're going to go, well, I'm only a fringe person. They don't know that. They assume that you are pretty much leadership around here. If you have your name attached to us, it matters because we're all one family. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. What are we as a church known for? What are we as a church, Bridgeway, known for? I'm not talking about how is the church known in the world's eyes. I'm talking about how is Bridgeway known in this community? Are we known as a bunch of hypocrites? Are we known as a bunch of Pharisees? Are we known as a bunch of immature people that don't have their lives together? Or are we known as a group of leaders, servants, ones that run after Jesus? Are we known as a passionate people for God? Are we known as those that are sold out? How are we known? And all that tailors right on us as a group. It's not just about the leadership. It's about how you handle yourself in Safeway. It's about how you handle yourself in Walmart. It's about how you handle yourself when you're in the movies. It's about how you handle yourself when you're parking, going through different restaurants. All that matters. What you're about to read in this passage that we're going to study is that their reputation ricocheted out into all the world, mostly because of their lifestyles. How are we living and how are we known? Let's dive into this book. Would you turn with me to First Thessalonians? First uh, Thessalonians, page 835. Uh, we got a little bit of intro stuff to go through. Anytime we open up a brand new book, we have to understand context or else we don't understand what's inside it. So this is the part where all you history buffs, click in. You're ready to go. All right. Everyone else, start making a menu for the rest of this week. All right. Maybe a little shopping list. Okay, do not bother the history buffs around you. They're very angry and they will bite you. Okay, so uh, just keep it quiet. That's cool. You can pass notes. All right, that's cool. I won't stop it. Now, let's dive into a little background. Who wrote this book? Paul the Apostle. Uh, Paul the Apostle wrote no less than 13 books in the New Testament. He's the most common writer. So if anyone ever asks you who wrote this book, just guess Paul and you'll be pretty good. All right, it kind of helps you out. It makes you look really smart. All right. Paul the Apostle wrote this book to the folks in Thessalonica because it's called Thessalonians, all right? Not rocket science. Cool. Where did he write it from? He wrote it from Corinth. He was there for almost two years. And while he was there, and we actually talked about him last week being there, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians within six months of each other. He wrote it around A.D. 50 or 51. Some of you go, I don't even care what that means. All right, let's dive back and find out a little bit about this city. Who are the Thessalonians? Pretty cool history. In 315 BC, before Jesus showed up here on the earth, 315 way back, there was a guy running around trying to take over the world. His name was Alexander the Great. Yeah, most of us understand that name. He had a series of generals underneath him. One of them was named Cassander. Cassander was a general in a region of the world that we now know as Greece, but was a little bigger and it was known as Macedonia. Now, the king of that region was Philip, Philip of Macedon. And Cassander was the general underneath Alexander the Great. He came into a region and a city that used to be known as Therma. Therma because of hot springs, because of the Thermaic Gulf next to it. He walks in. This place has been devastated in the past. He builds a brand new city. 
And when he builds this brand new city, he gets to name it. That's something cool about making a city. And what do you do when you name something brand new? First of all, you name it after a girl, because that's cool. Number two, if you want to score extra points, you name it after your wife. All right? So he named it after his wife, who happened to be the daughter of Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great's sister, stepsister. Um, we have to understand that these people were highly connected. All right? So we're talking about big dogs. He settles a city. It says this. Her name was Thessalonica, named after Therma, and it says in 168 BC, so much later, it was actually named the Roman capital of the whole region. So he plants a city of a little, about 150 years later, it becomes the biggest city in the whole region. I want you to picture on a map Greece, right? And you know, it kind of dips down and then Turkey dips down on the other side. It looks like hair. There's the left side of hair and the right side of hair. All right. On the left side is Greece dips down almost in a teardrop form. It's split into the north and the south. The north is Achaia, uh, Macedon, the south is Achaia. I just messed that up. It's the other way around. Do, do we care about this? No, we don't care about this. All right, let's move on. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedon. Philippi was the capital of Achaia. Skip, skip, skip. In Paul's day, I saw you guys getting bored. In Paul's day, there was about 300,000 people. The city still exists today, and it has about 400,000 people. Very similar. The unfortunate thing, just as a side note, is that in World War II, it became Nazi-occupied, and 60,000 Jews were hauled off and killed from this very city. It's had a lot of pain. It's had a lot of difficulty. When I had a chance to travel through this area, Thessaloniki, what is known now, is still a vibrant city of commerce. You're driving along, and it goes, building, 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 blank lot, building, 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 blank lot. And you're going around going, wait a second, where's the ancient city? It's really never been dug up. It's all underneath the, the major city. So all this old ancient city, every blank lot, you'll see ruins sticking out of the ground. It's weird. It's probably about 10, 15, 20 feet down underneath all the structures. So if you took out the buildings, dug down a little bit, you'd have this ancient ruined city coming right underneath it. Very cool concept. No money to dig it out, no interest to dig it out. But I remember walking along and there was this roped off area in a blank lot and right in the center of it was the Roman road, the Ignatian way. A little piece of it had surfaced and the Roman roads were famous throughout the world because they were the easiest traveled roads. It's how Rome got all over the place so quickly. On this Roman road, largely everyone walked, including Paul's missionary journeys had a tendency to follow them because that was the main way of getting from, in this region, east to west. Now, how did we get to write this letter? When Paul was back in his home country ministering, he was over on the Turkey side of things. Finally, he says, Lord, where do you want me to go? He got blocked from every other way. He was in Troas, right on the beach. And he said, God, I don't get it. What do you want me to do? That night, he had a dream. A man who was dressed and sounded like he was from Macedonia begged Paul, 
Please give us the gospel. He determined that night God had called him to go across the water and head into Europe, into the side of Greece. He travels over, and the first place he stops at is a city by the name of Philippi. Remember, that was the other major city. The Roman road goes right by there. Uh, Paul is now on his second missionary journey, and he's got a new partner. In his first missionary journey, his partner was who? Barnabas. They split. They broke up. Now he's got a new guy named Silas. Silas is a big dog from Jerusalem, a prophet, a man who was very, very well respected. He teams up with Paul. They launch on the second missionary journey. They go across into a place that has never heard the gospel before. They roll into town, meet a woman there. She gets saved and it begins to lead a revival. While they are there, one day they're going out to prayer and a demon possessed girl starts stalking them. All right, I know this happens to all of you. As they're walking along, this weird demon-possessed girl keeps yelling out. And the guys are like, Paul, do something. She's weird. She's freaking me out. Paul turns around and he casts the demon out of her. And she begins to hang out with him. The men who owned that slave girl and made money off that slave girl got so angry, they ran to the leadership of the city, who is self-governed, and they said, you have to take these guys to jail. They're subverting the whole nation. They're subverting this city. They're a horrible group of people. I don't know what they think they're doing. These Christians, they're ruining our commerce. And so the city grabs them. Paul and Silas has them publicly stripped, flogged, and beaten in front of everybody. Paul and Silas, two preachers, are now severely beaten and they're put into chains and put into a dungeon. Then this next part of the story is famous. What did they do next in the jail? They sang. Everybody remember that? Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns in jail. Why? Because they knew something that we tend to forget. It's not about our circumstance. It's about what God's doing. And their joy was out of control. They're sitting in this horrible situation. Their backs are bloody. And they're praising God and kicking back and just going, we're not worried. God is in control. That night, an earthquake hits. An earthquake that shakes the foundations of the city. It actually knocks all the chains off the wall and all the prisoners begin to break free. Now, there's not a lot of them. We basically got Paul and Silas and maybe a handful of others. The jailer was warned, if these guys ever get out on your watch, you're dead. The jailer is about to kill himself with his sword. And Paul says, hold up, we're all here. We didn't go anywhere. I'm not interested in you losing your job or your life. I understand that we're here for a reason. We are here on behalf of Jesus Christ. They share the gospel with the jailer. He gets saved. His family gets saved. And it spreads out like wildfire. The next morning, the city comes to him and they said, you got to get out of here. He says, wait a second. You beat me and I'm a Roman citizen. I guess I'm going to have to bring that up before Rome and you're going to lose your status as a free city. They panicked. They said, hey, just go. We'll forget the incident ever occurred. Paul and Silas then go to Thessalonica, 100 miles away. 
I want you to picture what this is like. That you've just been beaten, just went through an earthquake, the next morning you're kicked out and you walk five days to go to the next city. 100 miles on foot. They come into this city and they have a decent ministry there. Plant a healthy church with Silas. After three months, the Jews get jealous, start a riot, grab some of Paul's friends, and kick him out. Paul then leaves Silas and Timothy, and he goes down to Berea, 50 miles away. Great ministry. The Jewish opposition follows him, persecutes him. He moves on to Athens, finally gets back his crew, and he heads down to Corinth. Paul sends Timothy back to check on the Thessalonians. Hey, buddy, we left real early. We left in the middle of the night. It feels like to them. I mean, I know it was the next morning, but they were all expecting us to show back up. We had to run out. They're probably brand new Christians scared out of their minds. They don't know about leadership. They just got given the gospel. I know we have a thriving church there, but they're babies. Timothy. I trust you with my life. Go back and make sure they're okay. I want you to walk the 150 miles back. I want you to go back, check on them, make sure they're okay, and get back to me. It's likely he then sent Silas to Philippi. Silas, I need you to go check on those guys. Is everybody okay? Guys, we'll meet back here in Corinth. Are we all good? They fire out. Three months later, Timothy and Silas show back up. And Timothy says, Paul, they're doing awesome. You cannot imagine this brand new church, what they're doing. They are absolutely evangelizing the whole world. I know we were persecuted. They're even under a lot of heat. But wow, are they dynamic. Now, they actually do have a lot of questions. And he rolls out this scroll, right? He's got this enormous list. We do have to address a few things because they are babies. But Paul, it's awesome. Paul then sits down and writes a letter back, and that's the letter that we're going to study today. All right? Let's go ahead and pray for the word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we get an opportunity to walk back in time and to watch your hand move throughout history. That, Lord, that you would do things like earthquakes just to save a man and his family. That you would do things with empires that your gospel might go out. Lord, in our lives, shake the very foundation of the world around us that we may have opportunity to preach. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. In almost every uh, ancient letter at this time, they would always start out with, This is me. I'm writing you a letter. So you don't have to get to the end and figure it out. It's me. I'm writing to you. Greetings. Same thing happens with Paul's letter. It starts out. He said, hey, it's Paul here, right? I didn't know this. Paul means little. Did you know that? I don't know if that's why he was named that way. They're like, oh, look, a runt. How cute. Oh, look at him. He can't drink like the rest of them. It's really cute, right? So they named Paul little for whatever reason. Because uh, remember, he was Saul. And then what? God changed him. He said, well, you're kind of little. All right, here we go. Paul, who else? Silas, we just learned about him, and Timothy. Timothy is Paul's protege. 
Timothy's hardcore young man does whatever Paul needs, puts his life on the line. At the end of Paul's life, he wrote two personal letters to this very man. Put him into the toughest of scenarios. So we have three big dogs all writing back to people they love. Imagine if all of a sudden, next Sunday, you walk into church and somebody else walks up here and they look very serious. And they go, Pastor Lance is not going to be with us this week. And you're like, why? He was drug out of his home and his family, they're missing. Now, he, a couple of us got a chance to see him as he was going away. He said that he is going to be okay. He'll get back to us, but we don't know how long he's going to be gone. That same feeling is the feeling that these folks had. My desire to get back and to talk to you and make sure that you knew that I was okay and for me to check up on you is extreme. So I want you to make it personal. I want you to realize that these people really care about each other and love each other. All right. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. The, ch- the word church here in Greek is ekklesia. Ekklesia was a very common Greek word that actually means the called out ones. But it meant any public gathering, any time a group of people got together. The church of Jesus Christ grabbed it and said, that's us. We're the called out ones in God. We're going to use that name. And they grabbed it and we've held on ever since. So we've been known as the church ever since. But here's what I need you to see. Paul does not write to individual believers. He's writing to a group, a family of believers in a city. We have to slowly take in this idea of corporate identity. Bridgeway. You go, I don't like that. Who cares? I mean, people are doing stuff. I don't agree with that. Don't hold me accountable for what they're doing. You don't get it. God will deal with us as a church, as a whole. If there is a large segment of us out hurting other people, God will come in with correction on all of us. We need to understand that God not only deals with individuals, but he deals with groups of people. Right here, there's no splitting out. He says, all of you, this is what I need you to know. And a lot of people are going, that doesn't apply to me. Hold up. In a way it does, because it applies to that guy, and that guy affects you. I want everyone to know what we're talking about to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I understand this is intro stuff. So you're like, oh, come on, man. Are we going to get to the meat of it? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I blow past this stuff. Let's get into it. You know what you just missed? An argument for the deity of Christ. Did you see it? Nope. Sure didn't. Why? In Greek, there's one preposition and two people. What's the preposition? In. In who? In whom, I should say, right? What does it say? In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Greek, when you attach one preposition to two names, they're equal. Equal in nature. Right there, so many times we do this whole thing, did Jesus ever claim to be God and blah, 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 and was he really God? And we start questioning ourselves. It's everywhere in the Bible. All the writers are explaining over and over and over again. Yes, they're the same nature. 
Jesus is God. And we would have just missed it. Here's the other thing we would have missed. It says the Lord Jesus Christ. You go, okay, I get it. That's his name. No, that's three things he does. He is the Lord. What does Lord mean? It means master. The one who calls the shots. What does Christ mean? It means Messiah. The one that saves us from our sins. Jesus. What does it mean? It means the one who saves it is the one who is constantly with us. In my mind, it means the human side of Jesus who came and was with us. So we have a master. We have um, a savior. And in my mind, we have a friend who walks alongside us. All that's loaded in one term. Then he does his standard greeting. Grace and peace to you. Those are pretty powerful words, yeah? You go, well, he's just throwing it on there. No, he's not. He could have done any of them. He actually alters the normal way that that greeting is given. He uses it in a Christian way. What does he say? Grace. What does grace mean? Grace means you don't deserve God to treat you this kind. If you live under the grace of God, the result of that will be the next word. Peace. In the Hebrew world, they greet each other with shalom. Shalom means peace. It does not mean merely the absence of trouble. It means all that puts you at rest, may that be in your life. If you have the grace of God, it should translate to the peace deep within. The order of the words is very important. It does not go peace and grace. It goes grace, then peace to you because of what Jesus has done. Next phrase. Paul and his team say, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work, what? Produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love your endurance inspired by hope in our lord jesus christ three things thrown down on the ground look at this first word work what does work mean in greek ergon the word work means i'm doing something to produce something and i'm focused on the object i'm producing so that's my work i till the soil my job is to produce something. It's hard, no question. It's very difficult depending on the job. However, it's fulfilling. I'm making something. And it's focused more on the end result of what you just did. How does that translate to our lives? He said, Thessalonians, when I look at you, I notice that all the stuff that you produce for the kingdom of God, small groups, ministry, caring for other people, feeding the needy. I see all that stuff. And I know what your motivation is behind it. And that makes all the difference. What is their motivation for all the service that they do? What should the motivation be for all serving that occurs at Bridgeway? What is the motivation for all stuff that you do Outside of this church in your own sphere of influence Your work is what 
produced by faith. Faith looks backwards at what Jesus did and says, I believe it and I live it. Everything you do has to be promoted by the idea that, number one, Jesus exists. What's the point in doing church work if Jesus doesn't exist? Right? So it's on the foundation of faith. You believe that Jesus exists and you live as if he's he's right, that he has something to say about your life. And you live as if he is what? Ultimately done everything for you that you need. This faith should be the motivation for why you're doing what you're doing. Second element. We've seen your faith, your work produced by faith, your labor seems to be prompted by love. The word labor is different than work. Labor is the word to strain to the point of exhaustion. And it's just brutal and it's not fun, barely at all. Labor talks about how intense it is for you, not necessarily producing anything. What is the motivation to continue to be a Christian under heat? What is the motivation that you would dare sacrifice, 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 live selfless every day when you just want to quit? You're tired of it all. You don't want to keep doing it. Well, I don't know. What's the motivation of doing that in anything in your life? Parents, what is your motivation for continuing to guide your child when they are strong-willed, hate your guts, do the opposite of what you want them to do, drag your name through the mud, and make you cry on a daily basis? What is your motivation? It's always prompted by what? Love. You'd never do that if you didn't love them so much. Right? There's no other reason that will stick. Any other reason we will give up. But if we love God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our soul, and with all our strength, how can we give up? If we love other people... The way that Jesus loves us, how can we stop serving? How is that even possible? How is it possible that we give up on the world and just say, you know what? I'm tired of you guys bad-mouthing me. I'm tired of, I go out there and I serve and I serve. And there seems to be no opening for the gospel. Nobody cares about us. All you do is end up laughing at us, making fun of us. How does the church continue to serve the world? If it's anything less than love, it will fail. And we'll close our doors and hide inward. That's why love is so powerful. There's a third element to Christianity. And it's right here. Not only have, has Paul seen that their work was produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, but their endurance was inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you stick in there? Why don't you just hide in the closet and say, God, take me home? I'm done. Why don't you ever just go, the enemy always wins. Forget it. I surrender to the enemy and throw the white flag. 
Why don't we just cave as a church and say all our efforts are ridiculous? Why don't we say, you know what? The world's going to hell. It's pretty obvious. We're never going to turn the tide. And we're never going to make any difference. Everything seems to keep sliding the wrong direction. We're pushing a rock uphill and it's rolling back on us. We go two steps forward, three steps back. Why don't we just shut the church down and say, forget it? Because we have hope that the world doesn't have. What is the hope? That Jesus fixes it in the end. And so we don't look at our circumstances. We look right through them. Because on the other side of our circumstances is Jesus. And there's no point in staring at circumstances when you have the king on the other side. And so we stick in there because we do not track by what we see. We live by faith in what we do not see. And we know that regardless of how the world goes, even if it goes in a downswing and an upswing like it has throughout history, whether or not we're running towards the end of the world doesn't matter. We know there's something on the other side. And on the other side, Jesus is always in control. That hope keeps us going. And there's no point in throwing in the towel if we know our side wins. That would be foolish. We also have hope that one day Jesus Christ is going to come back and say, what would you do? I did good, Lord. I gave it my all. Right on. Appreciate that. Now let me clean up. Right? All right. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope, and our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know brothers loved by God. What did he call them? Called them family. In First and Second Thessalonians, the word brothers is used 28 times. What do you think his point is? We're in this together. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do we know that you have been pulled out of the world by God? Because of the impact. Because our gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that we preached, came to you, not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. He said, of course I know that Jesus has his hands all over you. Look at you. In the short six months that you've been believers... Your whole lives have transformed. Everybody knows what's going on. They knew how you used to be. They knew how you used to live. And they can see obviously what you are now. And I can tell you this, honestly, as your pastor from the inside out, that's what's going on here. It's extraordinary. And I can only encourage you that what God is doing here is astounding. That's why I'm still preaching here. If at some point I cease to see the Holy Spirit operate in this church, we need to go ahead and shut it down. Because there's no point in just hanging out. Right? It says this. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Paul said, I know people since I've been gone have been coming in going, oh, Paul bailed out of town. He probably doesn't really love you. And you know what? They're probably in it for the money. He said, whoa, 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 you know me. We lived among you. We worked our tails off so as to not be a burden. 
We constantly were gentle among you. We treated you like parents treat kids. What are we talking about? No, 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 no. You know how we lived among you for your sake. As a matter of fact, you saw it so well that verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You begin to copy how we act. You duplicated our lives. You started serving like that. You started acting like that. You started preaching like that. You duplicated us as we followed the Lord. And in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message in you rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Is that our reputation? Is our reputation that people who know you really well, your neighbors who watch you from a distance know that since you've been coming into Bridgeway you're different since you've been engaged with Jesus you live differently you act differently as we wrap up let me tell you this short story I had a neighbor uh, who lived two houses down from me in my old house we moved two houses down huge move I know and there was a young guy that lived there with his mom and his sister. Good looking guy, right? I know that's creepy to say. Totally good looking guy, right? And he was kind of like athlete. And he, the way he walked and handled himself was super arrogant. Literally, you could feel it from two houses away. <laughs> I was like, whoa, what is that? Whoa, that was like arrogance. What just kind of, right? It was not a threatening thing. It was, uh, I have no interest in the world because I got it all going on right here, right? I observed this. I said hi to him. He had no interest in really paying attention to even meeting me. His wife, I mean, his uh, mom was super sweet. She got a chance to talk with me a little bit. So they hung out. After about six, eight months, I watched him get out of his car one time and the arrogance was gone. It was so weird. His whole demeanor changed. The way he carried himself was different. And something changed in this guy. And I could feel it from down the street. Every time he would come home, all of a sudden I thought, all right, this kid looks a little bit different. And so I waved to him and go, hey, what's up? And he's like, hey, how you doing? All of a sudden I existed. I was like, oh, all right. I come to find out that he turned his life over to Jesus Christ. Come to find out he was on fire for the Lord. I come to find out that he was involved in programs now over at William Jessup University. I come to find out that from that moment on, he came over and sought me out to disciple him and we would meet for coffee. And I could feel it would never even talking to him. Your neighbors are watching you. And they can feel a groove from a block away. These Thessalonians so became enamored with Jesus Christ. And they were in the hub of activity. 
from trade going north, south, east, west. That everyone that traveled through that city would go, man, have you checked these Thessalonians out? You know what? That city I used to go in, that was a hardcore party city. Now all of a sudden I walk in. And there's all these people, they're like all serving and kind and loving and they're paying attention. I don't even get it. Something's weird about that city. And they go walking on. Paul says, as far as your reputation, therefore we do not need to say anything about it. For they, meaning the world themselves, report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. He said, your reputation gets all the way back to me. Everybody knows what you're like. That when you heard the gospel, you took it to heart. When you heard my teaching, you put it into practice. And now everybody knows that you're eagerly awaiting the return of your king. They don't know what that means. They just know that you're expectantly moving, waiting, working as if he's going to show up. They don't even agree with your theology, but they know that it matters to you. And they can feel it all over the region. As a matter of fact, it's known everywhere. In all the known world, they became the model of how Christians ought to live. Let me close in prayer and we'll close out with this video closing challenge and then we'll go see what God has for us this week Amen Heavenly Father we submit our day to you we submit our lives to you Lord may we have the right motivations for serving may we live such desperately different lives that our neighbors can feel it that Lord that we begin to understand from your vantage point how to change lives, how to serve rightly, how to love good. May we submit more of our lives under you and allow you to use us unhindered in the transformation of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by telling you that like Paul, I am so proud of you here at Bridgeway. Very few get to see what I see, which is an inside look at all the transformation happening around here. My challenge for today is that we begin to see ourselves as one family, that we operate as a family, that we do things as a family and uphold the family name of Jesus Christ. This means that we all jump in and serve one another. If we're doing it for the right reasons, the power that can be harnessed here with this many people is incredible. I hope that we are known throughout the community as a church of servants. I hope that if something needs to be done, people know that Bridgeway will step in if they could. Would you join me this week in actively serving as a church together? Would you find a place where you can plug in and be part of what God is doing here? Remember, if we are servants, there's nothing outside our job description. Look around you. What are you good at? What needs to be done in our home church here at Bridgeway? Make room this week for serving as a family.